The text on which I base my message to you is the gospel lesson for this Sunday. It's found in John chapter 5. I'm going to read verses 1 through 15. Sometime later, Jesus went up to Jerusalem for a festival of the Jews. Now, there is in Jerusalem near the Sheep Gate a pool which in Aramaic is called Bethesda and which is surrounded by five covered colonnades. Here, a great number of disabled people used to lie, the blind, the lame, the paralyzed. One who was there had been an invalid for 38 years. When Jesus saw him lying there and learned that he had been in this condition for a long time, he asked him, Do you want to get well? Sir, the invalid replied, I have no one to help me into the pool when the water is stirred. While I'm trying to get in, someone else goes down ahead of me. And then Jesus said to him, Get up, pick up your mat, and walk. At once the man was cured. He picked up his mat and walked. The day on which this took place was a Sabbath. And so the Jews said to the man who had been healed, It's the Sabbath. The law forbids you to carry your mat. But he replied, The man who made me well said to me, Pick up your mat and walk. So they asked him, who is this fellow who told you to pick it up and walk? And the man who was healed had no idea who it was, for Jesus had slipped away into the crowd that was there. Later, Jesus found him at the temple and said to him, see, you're well again. Stop sinning or something worse may happen to you. The man went away and told the Jews that it was Jesus who had made him well. Now, as I look at this text this morning and as I share a message with you based on it, we're going to do it in terms of three different scenes. The first scene is that which takes place at the pool of Bethesda. John tells us in our text that Jesus went up to Jerusalem for a festival, but we're not sure which one. Commentators are divided on the question, and frankly, no one can be sure for sure which it was because John doesn't specify which festival it was. So the bottom line is it doesn't matter. It really doesn't matter. What does matter is what Jesus did while he was there for that festival. What he did was to go to the pool of Bethesda. Do you know what the word Bethesda means? House of mercy. House of mercy. And I wonder if it was aptly named. Richard Lenski, as he comments on this passage, says this particular name was most likely bestowed upon it because of the erection of the five porches for the charitable accommodation of the sick or or because of the mercy God manifested in the supposed periodic healing. But if you stop and think about it, the name was really a contradiction in terms. We read in verse 3 of our text here, a great number of disabled people used to lie, the blind, the lame, the paralyzed. And verse 4 is almost assuredly not a part of the original manuscript where it says from time to time an angel of the Lord would come down and stir up the waters the first one into the pool after such a disturbance would be cured of whatever disease he had. It's probably not there, but it was given or or 
put into the text later on to try and, and give a little better understanding of what maybe did happen there. And we don't know for sure that anything ever happened there. There's not a single recording of a single healing. And I think something like that would have been written about. I think there would have been some responses about it. But, whatever the case, there is no actual record or record of any actual healings at Bethesda. But let's just say, for the sake of argument, that there were. Then why only one at a time? Why did so many lie there hoping and waiting and then end up frustrated because somebody else got healed? Sver Norberg in his book, God Controlled Lives, I think understands this scene very well. He writes these words. In these porticos lay a great multitude of invalid folk, of blind, halt, and withered. They'd come from all over the land, drawn thither by the rumor of the healing power of the water in the pool. This pool was an ancient lord's, if you will, with its fever of anticipation and its despondency of bitter disappointment. Of all hopelessness, that is the darkest which springs from continually baffled anticipation. If a few were blessed with a mental healing of their physical ailment, the majority always remained there in the spa, which to them, day by day, became more and more of a dungeon of despairing resignation. In their stoic indifference, hope died, withered by the desert wind of lowly or lonely hopelessness. Anyone who visited this misery, this veritable human junk pile, could easily distinguish the two groups. The excited newcomers who frantically awaited their chance of healing and the many half-bitter old-timers whose eyes told of a slowly killing despair. Anticipated recovery, hopeless dying. Such was the atmosphere of Bethesda. It says they were bonded or banded together in the solidarity of worthlessness. <laughs> Quite a description, isn't it? You know what? If I went to a festival, I can think of lots of places I'd rather go than to a place like Bethesda. Seriously. Yet that's precisely where Jesus went. And he went there specifically to a man who had been paralyzed for 38 years. And his encounter with this invalid from start to finish was most unusual. I mean, picture Jesus entering the property, looking over the residence, if you will, and then walking around or over, and who knows how many of each he went around or over. And then when he comes to the man mentioned in our text, there are no formal greetings, no attempts at getting acquainted, no small talk. 
Jesus' first words to this man were in the form of really an extremely blunt question. Do you want to get well? (laughs) Now, to be honest, I mean, at first glance, doesn't this seem like about the dumbest question Jesus could ask? Oop, I shouldn't have said that on my first Sunday. (laughs) But I'm serious. This is Jesus, the Son of God. God in human flesh. He knows everything. In fact, where it says that, that he learned, that's not a good translation from the original language. What it really says is he knew. He knew that this man had been here for a long time. He knew of his situation. Do you want to get well? The guy had been paralyzed for 38 years. I'll never forget. Well, I can't say I'll never forget. Sometimes I forget what I did two minutes ago. But I remember the first time I ever preached on this text. I was 38 years old. The man in the text had been paralyzed for 38 years. That hit me hard. That really impacted me to stop and think that there's, here's a man who's been paralyzed for as long as I had drawn breath. And try to put yourself in this man's position. Who knows how many years he'd been at Bethesda? Twenty? Who knows? It's not given to us. But again, Jesus knew that he had been in this condition for a long time, and yet he asked, do you want to get well? Well, (laughs) the paralytic's response to the question of Jesus attests to the fact that Jesus knew exactly what he was doing and that his question was precisely the question he should ask of this man. In fact, we our, our versions translate, do you want to get well? It would be better if, if it was translated more literally. Because the Greek word here is, is thelema, which literally means, do you have the will? Do you have the will to get healed? And look at, look at his response. Sir, I have no one to help me into the pool. When the water stirred. While I'm trying to get in, someone else goes down ahead of me. How many of you have seen uh, Jesus? That new series? Have you, have you witnessed that scene at Bethesda, the way they portray it? You know, people lying there on the edge of the pool, kind of half in almost, ready to just, you know, shift their weight and fall in and get healed, this guy, he's given up. He's way back. He's in one of the porticos. He has no hope. And along with the loss of hope, any will that he had to get healed went too. And that's good because it isn't about our wills. It's about our need. Sir, I have no one to help me. He doesn't answer yes, does he? 
and he doesn't answer no. You know what he's looking for here? It's not help. It's not healing. He's long since given up that hope. He's looking for somebody to share in a pity party with him. That's what he's looking for here. Somebody to say, wow, man, you got it tough. Life isn't fair. I feel for you. But then, where's the help in that? That's the kind of help I could offer him. And not anymore, but Jesus could offer way more than that. Long since abandoned, he had long since ceased to hope for healing, and now all he wanted was for people to feel sorry for him, to affirm him in his suffering, and to agree with him that life had given him a really bum deal. This way he could justify his self-pity. This way he could justify his bitterness to family and friends who had long since abandoned him there and to society in general, which in truth didn't really care about this man's needs. This way he could avoid personal responsibility for himself and even ultimately lay the blame on God. You know what? This guy is like so many people. Perhaps even some here today are like him. I can understand his bitterness, but I cannot justify it. Nor did Jesus. What this man needed was grace, undeserved favor. What this man needed was mercy, which I think the best definition I've heard of it is, or heard for it, is that mercy is help for the helpless. And and that is an aside here. The claim of the paralytic that he has no one to help him should be heeded by the church. Because we must minister in our day the grace and mercy and the love of Jesus to all who have needs. No one, no one should have no one to help. But look at Jesus' response. Get up. Pick up your mat and walk. There's no pity here. And it isn't my, I suppose, most often visualization of what mercy and grace are. I mean, you know, shouldn't you kind of be weeping? Shouldn't you kind of be, you know, really a soft-hearted person? Shouldn't you be leaning down and You know, putting your arms around this guy when you're talking mercy and grace. I guess not. (laughs) Because Jesus just bluntly says, get up. Pick up your mat and walk. (laughs) And at once, we read in verse 9, at once, immediately, he was cured. He picked up his mat and walked. 38 years of paralyzed legs and now without any attrition at all, he gets up and walks. Isn't that amazing? I can't fathom that. I, I believe it totally. 
But wow, what an amazing thing. At once, he picked up his mat and walked. No attrition. And theologically, no room for decision theology here because it wasn't about his wanting or his will. It was about the mercy and grace and love of Jesus who provided for a man who was, in a very real sense, dead. And what an amazing experience it must have been. So did the man live happily ever after? (laughs) No, I think his... His fairy tale life, if you will, was very short-lived because as he realizes this healing and picks up his mat and walks, I doubt that he really thought about the fact that this was a Sabbath and now in obedience to Jesus, he's going to go out and break the Sabbath. I mean, that's the first thing he does. He gets healed and he goes out and breaks the Sabbath. (laughs) And... The Jewish leaders didn't let it pass. Buddy, don't you know what day it is? What are you doing carrying a mat? You can't do that. Well, he's doing it, but you can't do that legally. (laughs) It's the Sabbath. You're breaking the Sabbath. Well, he says, and that's the only answer he really could give, the man who made me well told me to pick it up and to walk. So they asked him, who is this fellow who told you to pick it up and walk? And isn't that interesting? What a twisted perspective we see here from the religious leaders. Who is the guy who told you to break the law? It's really their concern. Who is the guy? who told you to disregard the Sabbath. What kind of person would do that? They don't ask about healing here. (laughs) They're not concerned to to be in in, in joy and rejoicing that the man who'd been paralyzed for 38 years could now walk and had the wherewithal even physically to pick up his mat and move along the streets. No, that's not what they're concerned about. They're concerned that the guy is breaking the law. So the first thing he does when he gets his new legs is into trouble. (laughs) This time with the religious elite. He gives an honest answer. I don't know who he is. I just know what he did. And it brings us to scene two later in the day. Scene two occurs at the temple. And the good news here is that Jesus was not finished with the paralytic. Physical healing was only the beginning of what he wanted to provide for this man. And we read in verse 14, later Jesus found him at the temple. And said to him, see, you're well again. Stop sinning or something worse may happen to you. Now, it's likely that the man went into the temple according to the law so he could have his healing verified. And I don't know if he walked in there still carrying his mat. Maybe he gave it up, huh? He could go down to Bedzar Us the next day and 
get a new one. Jesus found him. The man didn't find Jesus. Jesus found him. And we can search our whole lives, but we'll never find God on the basis of our efforts. He has to come to us. He has to come to us just as we are, just where we are, in our helplessness, in our paralyzed condition. And bring life to us. Jesus tells the man to stop sinning. But I want you to note that this is preceded by the statement, See, you are well. Just as the first word of Christ made possible the physical response of this man, he is well now so that he could pick up his mat and walk. Now, he is there to enable a spiritual response, a response of faith in the life of this man. Sin no more is really a a gospel word of pardon, not a legalistic command for human perfection. It was his sin that got him into this predicament in the first place. So how could he ever get out of it under his own power, his own efforts, no matter how hard he might try. And just as the man had no will to get healed physically, so he had no will to be healed spiritually. The man who healed, or the, the, the Jesus who healed the man's legs wanted even more to heal the man's soul. And I believe he did that. Now, there are some... I believe Sver Norberg, who I quoted earlier, is one of them. He thinks that 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 statement at the end of our text here, that the man goes off and and, and tells the Jews, um, he calls him a snitch. And 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 he and he thinks, and that's how he pictures this scene. That well, I got in trouble because of this guy, so I'm going to go nail him. I don't think he did that. I think he brought a word of witness to the religious leaders. I know the man now. He healed me. His name is Jesus. And I think that it was a testimony here and not an act of treachery. So there's a third scene. Wait a minute. I'm already through all the verses of the text. Where's scene three? Maple Grove, Minnesota. You get it? Scene three is right here. And Jesus, who we sang to that that hymn, who is the great physician, he's here. And he comes to bring healing to us. He comes... To bring life where there was only death. He comes to bring peace and joy where there was only emptiness. Paralysis is really death. It's helplessness. It's bound wills. And there are many who are paralyzed by their own sinfulness. Perhaps you're one here today. 
You're suffering the consequences of your sin. You're unwilling to accept personal responsibility for your predicament. You blame others or ultimately God himself, anyone but yourself. You're unable to get yourself on your feet. You're alienated. You're bitter. Truly, you're hopeless. And yet Jesus comes to you to make you well. Jesus comes to you to make you not only well physically, but to give you life in your spirit. To cause you to be born anew. To give you the gift of faith by which you might trust him personally as your Savior. Now there are others here perhaps today who are paralyzed by sins that have been done to them. Innocent victims who unfortunately haven't reacted successfully to them. Victims of divorce or abuse or whatever. And you find yourself unwilling and unable to forgive those in your past. You're unable to put the past behind you. You're unsure that you even matter to anyone the way you've been treated in the past. You too are alienated, bitter, and hopeless. But Jesus comes to you today, this morning too. He understands just what you need. And he comes to ask you, do you have the will to get well? Recognize that for you, just as for that man, Jesus must come to you and ask that question. That there is no help apart from him. And that if Jesus didn't come to you or to me, we'd spend our lives at Bethesda. And even if others got healed, we'd sit by helpless. What do you think it smelled like at Bethesda? Hmm? Sickness, death, the stench of hopelessness, The stink of worthlessness. And yet when Jesus comes, he can make all things new. You don't have to settle for getting people to feel sorry for you. And you don't have to make excuses for yourself. You don't have to point fingers or lay blame. You don't have to live in the past. Jesus would say to you, get up, take up your mat and walk. God has the power to heal you today. God has the power to set you free. God has the power to restore your soul and to help you know that you matter. In fact, you matter so much that Jesus didn't stop at Bethesda. He went to Calvary and laid down his life for your forgiveness and for your opportunity to be born anew. God's mercy and grace isn't just some theological thing. It's for you. He came to give you what you didn't deserve. He came to provide help for you in your helplessness. His mercy and grace are you. And he calls us then to stop sinning. And again, that's a gospel word. 
It's not a demand for perfection, but a call to live by faith, to live in his grace, to live dependent upon Jesus for every step you take. It's a call to live in daily repentance and faith. Life may be for you like it was for the, the, uh, the guy in our text. won't necessarily get any easier for you. You'll still meet with problems, and some of them serious, and some of them undeserved. But remember that God's promise to you is God's promise, not man's prohibition. Jesus said, Surely I am with you always to the very end of the age, Matthew 28. Paul in Philippians 1.6 says, I'm confident of this, that he who began a good work in you will carry it on to completion until the day of Jesus. What he begins, he'll see through to the end. He will not abandon you. He will meet all your needs according to his riches in Christ Jesus. Do you want to get well? Do you have the will? No? Well, Jesus has the power to give you new life, to work faith in your heart, and to enable a response in faith. Get up. Take up your mat and walk. And walk with him. Walk with God, new in Jesus, set free from whatever it is that has paralyzed you or bound you or beaten you down, to walk with God in a personal relationship with him in daily renewal because his grace and mercies are new every day. Amen. Father, this is your word to us. I I just, I don't know, I I appreciate that that the experience of of mercy and grace and, and the reality of your love as is expressed in this text. It's not a, it's not a, a real emotional thing, <laughs> but it's a life-changing thing. It's an all-powerful thing. It can make us new and keep us new. And so, Lord, by your grace, enable us to get up, to take our mat, and to walk, to follow you. In Jesus' name, amen.